or why do we have to repent of our sins, but much deeper than that. So that's what we're going to try to answer during this series. We're going to read from a very familiar John 3.16, then we're going to go back to the first part of the chapter and read a few verses from there. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. You can quote this probably. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then to the same chapter, verse 1, says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, verily I say unto you, except a man be born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. If a man could enter the womb again and be reborn, he'd still have the same problem. The problem is that he has a nature of sin. He's got a sin nature that has to be dealt with. And so we're going to talk about you must be born again. First of all, this phrase, born again, is something that, that Christianity, and especially denominal Christianity, unfortunately, you don't really hear it that much. and You don't really hear people talk about it that much. John 3.16 is a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's been quoted, I don't know how many times, millions of times, billions of times, over and over and over and over by people. And many of them never stop to really consider that in the same chapter as he said, for God so loved the world, etc., that Jesus also said in that same conversation earlier, you must be born again. And so the importance of being born again is to be born all over again. And so Nicodemus, he was a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. The Bible says he kept the law stringently as such. He would have strictly kept the law of Moses. He was more than just a good Jew. In fact, his goal as a Pharisee was to achieve the ultimate level of holiness in the eyes of God. And the word for Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word meaning those who withdraw themselves or separate themselves. And so it wasn't just we're going to withdraw ourselves from the, the, what they call the common people, the sinners. But, for example, the Pharisaic life meant a strict life of separation from certain types of clothing certain types of foods. They couldn't eat bacon. God blessed their hearts. Couldn't eat biscuits and gravy with some sausage mixed in it. Uh, hope I'm not making anybody too hungry. They couldn't eat anything that comes from any animal that was considered unclean. It was, it was, against, it was against their law. And so they devoted their lives to it. In addition to that, it meant a lifetime of prayer multiple times a day. Uh, and fasting multiple times a week. It meant studying and reading from the Torah, what we, what we know as the Old Testament, the Law and Prophets, several hours a day, and meticulously studying every single detail of the Law of Moses. That's what it meant. And so it meant a lifetime of separation unto God. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus because he's a little confused. Here was, here was a person that didn't separate himself, like although he, Jesus certainly kept the law in his day, but, but it, from the Pharisaical perspective, Jesus was not as righteous as they were because he didn't do what they did. He didn't pray like they prayed. 
he mingled with sinners and publicans and prostitutes and tax collectors. And so from their perspective, you know, this guy can't be from God because he's not like us. He's not a prophet like us. Every other prophet, look at Elijah, who spent his life mostly in solitude. And he was a man of great prayer, like the Pharisees probably would have strove to be. Many of the prophets were Pharisees or certainly would have lived a Pharisaical life. And so Jesus, you know, they knew that he was somebody different. So, so there's, there's part of Nicodemus that says he's not like us, but another part of him that says, well, he performs miracles. And, and you know, one plus one equals two. It doesn't take, you know, that's basic. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that sinners don't perform miracles. At least it was that simple in Nicodemus' mind. And so how, how could this be? And so he comes to Jesus and he says, I know you come from God. I know that much because of all these miracles. And so, you know, Nicodemus coming by night, you know, was acknowledging the fact that I know you're not popular among my clan. So I'm going to come by night where nobody can see me. And, and nobody can notice what I'm doing. So he came to Jesus by night, and he, he didn't really even ask a question, but Jesus immediately read what was, what was involved in his heart. And Nicodemus had a sin problem, even though he was a Pharisee. And so Nicodemus was told by Jesus, not just you must be born again, but verily, verily, I say unto you. Verily just means truly. Truly, truly, I say unto you. He repeated it twice. It's like he's reiterating it. I'm... Pay attention to what I'm saying now because there's no doubt about it. You must be born again. There's no other way to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, if you want to enter into this kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Nicodemus is coming at it from the mindset of, but I'm a Pharisee. I'm already good. I'm already doing great things. So I'm already in the kingdom of God. So, so Jesus' statement kind of puts him as an outsider. And so, you know, Nicodemus, you know, as far as we know, he wasn't offended at it, but he was just inquisitive. But Nicodemus could have been offended by that, as many were in Jesus' day. And here's why. Because the same requirement was made for the prostitutes, the thieves, and the murderers, as for the most strictly religious of their day. You must be born again. In Jesus' view, there was nobody first in line. There was nobody on top of the hilltop that was closer to God than anybody else. Because the purpose of the law was to put everybody as guilty under sin, as, as, as guilty of sin and as under the law. And so nobody was closer to the kingdom of God. I think that of, of our day too, we have bad people. We've got murderers, we've got thieves, we've got the dregs of society, those that, uh, those that sell drugs and do very bad things and break laws. And we've got good people as well. We've got those who devote their life to helping others, to giving of themselves, their resources, their time, their money. And we as humans look at those people. And in our own human reasoning, we often put the latter as closer to God than the former. And the reason is faulty human reasoning. We think you know, not, not we, not necessarily meaning the church, but a worldly mindset looks at somebody that's devoted their life. They may have moved to Africa and, and devoted their life of giving of their resources and time their whole life. And they've done a lot of good things and they've never broken any laws and they've never, you know, had any really bad big sins. And people would look at those and say, well, when they die, then they go to heaven because that's what gains God's approval. But that's our reasoning. 
But that's not what Jesus said. Because Nicodemus was such a man. And he wasn't any more strictly religious or any less than the most stringent religious person in our day. Nicodemus was just as devoted to keeping the law and prophets as anybody alive today would ever be without the spirit and baptism in the name of the Lord and without being born again. If you give your entire life to the service of the poor, if you never break a law, if you give all your money to the church and die, you still die lost. That was the point that Jesus was driving. And that may offend you. And if it does, you know, join the club because that was the big stumbling block in Jesus' day too. You know, Paul called the cross, Paul called the cross a stumbling block. And not just that somebody had to die, but if he had to die, that means he needed to die. And if he needed to die, that means there was a reason for it. And we were the ones standing in the need of a sacrificial atoning death. So man has faulty reasoning. The faulty reasoning goes like this. If I'm good enough, God will accept me. If I do good enough, if I'm a good enough person, I will get to heaven. You have heard this said countless times in the media and by people that are, that don't, that are not really familiar with what the gospel truly is. But the first word of the gospel is repent and believe. And if you don't think you need a savior, what's the point of repenting? So you've got to be convinced that you need a savior first. And so, so people think that, that good people naturally go to heaven. After all, how can God condemn good people to an eternity of judgment? If somebody's good, if they've done, if, if their good deeds far outweigh their bad, how could God condemn? How can God be a God of love and condemn somebody like that? But here's the answer. In Romans, sorry, in Psalms 14 and verse 1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that does good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that didn't understand and seek after God. They are all together turned aside. They are become filthy and there is none that does good. No, not one. Paul picked up on that thought. In that verse in Romans 3 and quoted that to prove a point of the gospel. Romans 3 and 12 says they are all gone out of the way. See, he's quoting from what we just read. They are together becoming profitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. And verse 23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So a couple things about that. First, he said, there's nobody that's done any good. Nobody on earth. Matter of fact, you know, that kind of goes against worldly thinking as well. Because we know a lot of people that have done a lot of good things. But they're not good in God's eyes because they don't gain his approval. That's what he meant when he said, you've come short of the glory of God. The word glory here just simply means that which gains God's approval. As a matter of fact, this word glory is translated as approval many times in the New Testament. So, so not, not, not good enough also means that we've missed the mark. We miss God's holiness, his glory, his righteousness, but it also means that we failed to get the approval of God. Man's faulty reasoning is that good works and good deeds can justify us and get us to be approved of God. <coughs> but if that were true, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? What was the point of it all? I mean, if I'm God, I'm not going to go down and suffer all those things 
if, if you can just be good and, and at the end of the day your good deeds outweigh your bad and you're a pretty good person. Because here's, here's the other thought of it is that we are always good by our own reasoning. Even men who commit crimes are justified of themselves many times in their own mind. I'm doing this because I'm committing that murder because they murdered somebody else. They murdered somebody else, so I'm going to murder them. They hit me, so I'm going to hit them back. They stole from me, so I'm going to steal from them. They've got all this stuff, and I don't have any, so I'm going to even the playing field, and I'm going to steal from them. Men often justify their deeds. So by whose definition is it good or bad? There has to be an arbitrary judge that stands from the outside. And so the arbitrary judge is God and his word, and he's gave us the law. And the law are the Ten Commandments, and if you've broken one of the Ten Commandments, you stand guilty before God. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Uh, don't have any of the gods before me. Well, you might say, well, I've never done any, broken any of the Ten Commandments. Okay, maybe so. But look at, you know, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he didn't just say don't commit adultery. What did he say? If you look and lust, you've committed adultery. He didn't just say don't murder. He said if you hate a brother, if you've ever hated somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. He didn't just say don't steal. He said if you covet somebody's goods, you've stolen in your heart. So the point was not to have a list of things that you do and don't do. The point was that he was making the law stricter under grace to bring men to a point not of condemnation uh, but of guilt before God. Of being convinced that their own deeds are wrong. And men do need convincing of that. I think the Ten Commandments are a part of the gospel that's often been left out in many pulpits today, unfortunately. Because that is the one thing. You know, we can preach all we want about you can receive the Holy Ghost. But if somebody's back there and they already think they're a pretty good person, you know, because the people that receive the Holy Ghost, the quickest are the ones that say, oh, man, I know I need it. But if you come and you got a pocket full of change and you think you're rich and you don't come poor in spirit, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is what? The kingdom, the kingdom of God. That's the same thing that Nicodemus was told. You got to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Because when I become poor in spirit, it means I become convinced of my own unrighteousness and my own filthy rags. Do not measure up to God. And I come to the Lord and I lift my hands and I say, God, I need you right now. I'm nobody. I'm nothing special. And you know what? In that moment, you are the closest to the kingdom than you've ever been before. So it could be said, if somebody was closer to the kingdom, it could be said in Jesus' day, it could be said the Pharisees were not. Probably last in line because they were the first to justify themselves. Matter of fact, Jesus said that. If you said you have no sin, your sin would not remain. But because you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. Remember when he healed the blind man and they said, you know, you're blind and, and, and we're, we're these Pharisees and we're up here and we're special and you're just a sinner. And who are you to teach us? And Jesus said, you know what? He's not the real blind person here. Oh, we need our eyes open to the power of the gospel. Amen. The problem is not just sin, which we all have, but the problem is there is a nature of sin that man is born with. It is called the nature of Adam to have a, a million dollar word. It's just called the Adamic nature, the nature of Adam. Adam was created with a godlike and innocent nature. When he sinned, that nature was changed into a nature that is naturally sinful. And all who are born of Adam 
that had this nature passed on to them from their natural father. In that sense, you have come in contact with the sin nature. You were born with it because you were born of a woman through the natural and fleshly seed of a man. And that can be traced all the way back to Adam. It's like an irrevocable and incurable disease that you were born with. You can get crutches, you can get, you can get meds, you get all these things, but at the end of the day, there's no cure for this. Like leprosy, they put, you know, they would, they would clothe themselves uh, in garments to try to hide, you know, their filthiness and to try to hide, uh, you know, their flesh that was turning colors, but they were still a leper. Leprosy is a type of sin. You're still a leper no matter what kind of perfume you put on. No matter what kind of robe you put on, it's still a leper. And you know what? When all that's stripped away, God sees down to the very heart. And that is the one thing that man cannot do. We cannot know the heart. All we can do is judge by the deed. But God sees deep, deeper than the deed. He sees all the way to the intents of the very heart. And to carry this further, Paul called this in very nature the enemy of God. It's not just a bad idea to have it. It's literally the enemy of God. Romans 8 and verse 7 says, because the carnal mind, is that's the carnal nature, is enmity against God. For, this is why, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So to be in the flesh means to be in Adam or to be in this sin nature and walking in it and living in it. Because there was only one man since Adam who was born without the aid of the seed of Adam, and that was the Messiah. He was born, he didn't need the aid of the seed of a man, he was born through the power of the Holy Ghost. And that's why he was called, that, that baby in that womb, that fleshly baby was called the Son of God. From Isaiah 7 and 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. A virgin conceiving meant the nature of Adam was not passed on to the Lord. And as such, a new generation was born. Maybe that's what Isaiah meant when he said, who shall declare his generation? Those are, there are those in Adam and there are those in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 and 22 says this, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam... All die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So he says, in Adam, all will die. All are dying. All are spiritually dead and separated from God. But in Christ, you can be made alive. So you were born into Adam naturally, but you must be born into Christ supernaturally. It's a supernatural birth. And that's why earlier in the chapter from John 3, Jesus continued his conversation with Nicodemus in verse 6. And he says this, because Nicodemus has just added, Asked, how could a person be born when he's old? Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. Now watch what he says. The wind blows where it lists and you hear the sound, but you cannot tell where it comes and where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. So there is a natural birth we've all partaken of. And you can do as much good as you want. You can give your life away to being separated in a monk monastery. You can give all your belongings and possessions away to the poor. You can donate all of your time to helping others and do good deeds. But at the end of the day, you're still in Adam. And you still have a sin nature. Nicodemus was told, you must be born all over again. You've got to go back 
and be born without the aid of that sin nature because that sin nature wants to justify itself and it wants to be right in God's eyes on its own, in its own way. But God has a way. God has a plan. So there's a natural birth and there is a spiritual birth. The super, there's a supernatural birth. This supernatural birth first took place on the day of Pentecost. Remember, Jesus told Nicodemus, when referencing how we'd be born again of the water and the spirit, he said, there's a fleshly birth and there's a spiritual birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said you must be born again. Then he started talking about the wind. The wind blows where it wants and you hear the sound, but you cannot tell where it goes and where it's coming from. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. In other words, you will hear a sound like the wind blowing. And on the day of Pentecost, I think you know what happened then. Suddenly. There came a sound as of a rushing, mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting and praying. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. That was the spiritual birth that Jesus was referencing. So just as God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, so the Holy Spirit is the wind that breathes life into our spiritual man through the Holy Ghost. You are dead until you're born again of the water and the spirit. And suddenly, you, you know, God opens you up to this whole new world. There's more peace than you ever thought of before. There's more love than you ever had known before. I mean, it's like suddenly God opens your eyes up to a real world. You thought you were living in the real world. But, oh, you don't know what the real world is until you're born again of the water and the spirit. And until you lifting your hands up and tears are rolling down your cheeks and you're speaking in other tongues, oh, you can sit there a doubter. But let me tell you, my friend, I just dare you, amen, to ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit and believe him for it and see what God has for you. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This was the message that offended the Pharisees and Sadducees right here. They thought their good works and good deeds made them approved of by God. But there's no first in line at the cross. Salvation is not of yourselves, Paul said. In other words, it's not in you to be saved. It's in Christ. And it is a free gift. Everybody say gift. That was the word he referenced in verse 8. It is the gift of God. It's by faith. It's by grace. And when, whenever Peter uh, was preaching to them on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and he preached the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, and in verse 37, they said, What shall we do, Peter, to be saved? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promises unto you and to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. It's a free gift, and it is received by faith. Now, let me answer this question briefly. Isn't speaking in tongues works? Let me answer that with Scripture. Galatians 3 and 2, because some people, that's what some people think. They think speaking in tongues works, but not saved by works. Galatians 3 and 2 says this. This only what I learn of you. Receive you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. The question was rhetorically asked, how did you receive the Holy Ghost? Did you receive it by works or by faith? 
Now you answer that question and you'll know if receiving the baptism of the Spirit is a work or it's an act of faith. Because when you're working under the law, you're striving to do something in your own ability. But the Bible says they spake in tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. The Spirit gave those words to them. And when I'm lifting my hands and when I'm speaking in other tongues, it's the Spirit that's speaking through me and in me. It's not flesh that's doing a work. It's the Spirit that's doing a work in me. It's not fleshly works. It's the Spirit works. Spirits, the Spirit's works. Amen. So when you are born again, you are made into a new creature uh, as we stand musicians come. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. Remember when Jesus said at the end of the book of Revelation, he said, Behold, I make all things new. You know, already, in a sense, he's already made all things new in us. Now, one of these days, he's going to make all things new in the sense of, you know, the heaven and the earth are, are, are once again going to be as they were in the beginning and probably even better. But until then, right now, you can be a new creature. Your world that you live in can be made brand new and fresh. It can be painted new all over again. God can take no matter how bad of a painting that canvas is, no matter what you've done, no matter how many good things you've done or how many bad things you've done, God can take you right now in this very moment and make you a brand new person through the power of the Spirit of God. And that's the power of the gospel, my friend. Let's lift our hands right now and let's thank God for that. Isn't he wonderful today?